0: God's people said, Amen. Amen. Wonderful music today, and that hymn of heaven uh, has become one of my favorite. And I appreciate, appreciate so much Mike introducing us to, um, to that song. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 6 through 9 in just a few moments. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Um, our Linda and I are happy to have some guests with us from Prattville today and Faye and uh, Gidget and Ginger thank y'all for being with us and sharing in our worship today and been blessed to have ministry with all three of those families um, those ladies through the through the years we're glad to have you. C.S. Lewis many of you recognize that name wrote the Chronicles of Narnia the Great Divorce um, a number of other books Mere Christianity And uh, he was uh, not a Christian growing up, though he had been baptized in the Church of Ireland. Later, he would receive his education in England and become a professor at Oxford University. But at the age of 32, he had been a part of a a group of of men, of other professors. One of those, some of you recognize the name J.R.R. Tolkien, who was the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, because of the witness of J.R.R., Uh, C.S. Lewis came to Christ. He wrote a book about his salvation experience entitled Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. What a great title. And he truly was in his own life as God transformed him. He became one of the leading figures during the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, of taking uh, the faith, our faith, doctrine, and theology, and helping to uh, make it somewhat practical. He wrote some th- the books on fiction, used greatly during World War II uh, in England for inspiration, and uh, just again wrote on our faith. Was a great apologist, a defender of our faith. One of his uh, writings had this paragraph. I want to read to you for here just a moment. I must keep. Alive in myself, the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I want you to know that's what motivated me to have this series, to create this series a few years ago, as I was approaching that year before my retirement, and I announced it a year ahead, and uh, the church was looking through its process, looking for a new pastor. During that year, I had prayed earnestly, and I God, how do you want me to end my ministry here at First Baptist Travel? And as I always prayed about what I should preach, I really was diligent. What should be my last series? What should be my last message? Uh, messages that I should preach? And during that year, six months before I retired, I preached a series, a series I'm sharing with you. Uh, I preached this on heaven. I've updated it since then, gathered some other materials and things uh, to make it more even more relevant than I did then. But one of the things uh, that I did was God had just put on my heart. I, I needed to preach this because, see, I was just like you and many other Christians. It's easy to find ourselves living earthbound. We become so involved with family, with friends, with work with uh, interest of our own uh, in life, that we become earthbound. We're living earthbound when we really should be living for another place, living for another land, living for heaven. That's what should be motivating us in our life. As your brother in Christ, as a minister of the gospel, then I felt it was my responsibility, my my desire, though I preached on heaven on other occasions and funerals, Uh, and had preached uh, uh, on on other occasions, again, some Bible studies that I did. But God really impressed upon me, we need to look at heaven and help people to see we need to be living for another land instead of just living for here. And so that was the birth of this series of of messages. And, And we've been answering a lot of questions over the past six Sundays. And many of those questions maybe you've had, and maybe it's fostered some others and reminded you of some other things you may want to know but hopefully we have have at least spread a wide net to have some questions that you have about heaven answered. Now, today we're going to be looking at five particular questions and I put them together because uh, there's there's not enough material for a sermon on all five of these, but but to put them together, condense them and to share some things that I think would be interest to you but also would touch your heart and inspire. You one of those that I think is kind of lighthearted is the very first question, and that is, will there be animals in heaven? Where there'll be animals in heaven? Well, folks, the answer is yes. There're going to be animals. I mean, the, the most second most important inhabitants of our world are the animals, and, and in the Garden of Eden and, and in, in the Book of Genesis we read about read about the animals, and they are dear to us. They are important to us. God has given us uh, the assignment of reigning over. The animals. Your Bibles are open to Isaiah 11. Follow with me, beginning in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearning together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed uh, with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra then, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, here you can see the importance and and even go over to Isaiah 65 and you'll find even more of a a comment about what's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. Because that's what this is, is a prophecy of the new heaven and the new earth. And animals are going to be a part of it. Let me remind you of of some scriptural uh, thoughts about that. First of all, right there in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we have the animals being created. And as the animals are created, it was before the curse, before sin even had been committed, they were part of the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says it was good on that day of creation. God said, this is good. We also are reminded in in the book of Genesis when the earth was destroyed by the flood that on the ark... Noah welcomed all the animals. God brought all of the animals of all kinds of animals. He brought them onto the ark. And he wanted to repopulate the earth after it would be destroyed by the flood. Just like he brought Adam, or brought uh, Noah and his wife, and his three sons and their wives onto the boat to repopulate the earth. He did that with animals as well. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read about uh, Jesus on the white horse. Now remember, he came into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And he came humbly on on that donkey. But in Revelation chapter 19, at the end of the the tribulation, and at the last battle, he's going to be on the victorious horse, the the white stallion. And then on Romans chapter 8, we read another truth that this earth is going to be redeemed. Not just you and me, but all of creation, which includes the animals as well. See, all of us are connected because of the curse and judgment. But we will also share in the blessings and the deliverance as well. So God has a plan for all of of His creation to be a part of this new heaven and this new earth when we will find paradise has been redeemed, paradise will be regained, And we will see the end of sin and death that will be swallowed up in victory, the Bible says. But there's a sub-question. What about your pets? What about your pets? We talked about that last Sunday morning just a little bit. Gave you that little teaser. Uh, Some of you may be wondering, well, what about my pet that died? Are they going to be in heaven? Well, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, the Bible says he's going to make all things new. So there are a lot of people that believe the animals will be in heaven. Your pets will be raised in heaven as well. Because God says, I'm going to make all things new. He's going to refresh everything. And they are part of this new creation that God is going to be creating. And so, uh, and, uh, Romans 8 talks about, so are the animals, your animals, your pets going to be in heaven? You know, he did give you a, a, a gift of affection. A lot of you love your animals, and, and uh, you have, you've shared affection with them. And when they die, you grieve. Now, let me warn you, when you grieve for an animal, you need to treat that animal just like you do a person. You, after a while, the grieving has to stop, all right? But you move on uh, from, from that grief. But it's okay to grieve. God gave you that heart. But God gave you the gift for affection for your, for your special pet. So the question is, are they going to be in heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a clear answer. It doesn't give us a clear answer. But I believe this. If your pet is not resurrected in heaven, I believe he's going to give you some more pets to love on. He's going to give you some more. There are going to be plenty of animals in heaven that that you will be able to show that gift of affection to them in heaven. Well, let's move on. The second question. What about near-death experiences? Near-death experiences. R.G. Lee was uh, one of the pastors that I, that I grew up on as a young preacher boy, kind of reading and emanating uh, some of his things in, in my own life, and my own ministry. He was the longtime pastor of, of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He, he preached a sermon, Payday Someday. He preached it all over the country. When he was on his deathbed, he raised up and he said, I see Jesus. I see Jesus, and I never did Him justice. And he laid back down. And with his dying breath, he said, I see heaven, I see heaven, and I never did it justice either. There was a man by the name of Raymond Moody who popularized the phrase near-death experiences. He wrote a book about this in 1975. He coined the phrase. He was the nephew of D.L. Moody. Some of you recognize him as a great preacher of the 19th century. And when when D.L. Moody died in December 22nd, 1899, on his deathbed, he said these words, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, and God is calling. But let me tell you something about D.L. Moody and R.G. Lee. Neither one of them came back. To tell us what heaven was all about. It's interesting. None of them did that. So what are we to make over near-death experiences? Well, there's some things that they have in common. People that, that uh, shared their feelings, share what they experienced in their near-death experience. They, they felt like they were floating in the air. Uh, they, they had a peace that they had never experienced in the past. Uh, they saw uh, a light in a tunnel. They talked about going through a tunnel and seeing light on the other side. They talked about that their life just flashed before them in, in just a matter of seconds. They, they speak about uh, being called back. People were calling them back into this world. And they talk about seeing God, seeing Jesus, seeing angels, and seeing their friends. And some of these have put their thoughts down in books. Let me share three that maybe you're familiar with. In 2004, there was a book written, 90 Minutes in Heaven. It was written by a preacher by the name of Don Piper. And in fact, one of my good friends in ministry had Don in his church a few years ago over in in Montgomery. Uh, In 1989, he was involved in a a terrible uh, and tragic automobile accident in Texas. And he was pronounced dead on the scene, and a cloth was placed over him. And 90 minutes later, people noticed he's moving around. And he wrote a book about his 90 minutes in heaven. Uh, Two years later, in 2006, another man wrote a book, 23 Minutes in Hell. And he shares his experience of, quote, having clinically died, but spent 23 minutes in hell and came back to tell about it and to write about it. But the one that you probably are the most familiar with is Heaven is for Real. That was a a book that was written in 2010. It's a story about a four-year-old boy named Tom uh, Todd Burpo. And a movie would be made of of this experience. The, The story goes he was four years old, and he had surgery and died during surgery. And he went to heaven, and he saw grandparents who he'd never met before, uh, he saw God. He saw Jesus, and he also saw a sister that he never knew that he had. And when he came back, he's sharing this with his his parents, and that's when they said, "Well, you had a sister that that died in in, in a miscarriage or a baby uh, a sibling of some sort, and now is in heaven." And so he's bringing back all these. Experiences that that he had at that particular time. Now, again, there are a lot of other stories, but I want you to think biblically for just a moment. Let me ask you some questions. When you when you think about near death experiences, when you've heard stories or heard people's testimony, read the books, seen the movies, do these near death experiences collaborate or contradict the Bible? Do they collaborate what the Bible says or contradict the Bible? Do do they glorify God? Or do they, do they glorify the person that has had the experience? And the last question is this. Do near-death experiences motivate you to know more about heaven and about God or to have that kind of experience yourself? So let's look at four principles to help us to make a judgment about these near-death experiences. The first one is this. Near-death is not death. Near-death is is not death. You will you will say, Pastor, well what about Lazarus? Well Lazarus died. That that is for sure. Lazarus died. But Hebrews chapter 927 says each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. So Lazarus did die and he and he came back because Jesus resuscitated him and it was for a purpose. But our basic experience, as Hebrews 9:27, is that for the overwhelming majority of us, we're going to die once, and then we're going to enter into eternity. Near-death experience is just that. It's, it's death. It's once and for all. So a second statement. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. in many of these experiences of the books I've shared with you, and there are countless others out there in bookstores many times they, they seem to intimate that the Bible is not sufficient. That there's some special knowledge that God's going to be giving other people and they say they have it and it's their basic intent and conclusion that the Bible is not sufficient. Now, while some of these stories can be comforting and can remind us of our hope in heaven and yes, has even changed uh, the lives of some people and turned them toward God, there is only one main source of comfort, and that is God's Word. It's God's Word that gives us our greatest hope and our greatest comfort, and we should never turn away from the Bible looking for something in someplace else that possibly and many times contradicts what the Bible has to say. A few years ago, some of you are familiar with a book called The Shack, and The Shack was... A, a book about a, a family that they lost a daughter. She uh, had presumed to have been kidnapped and had been killed in a certain cabin. The family's grieving. The father receives an anonymous note, and supposedly from God, that says go back to the cabin. He goes back to the cabin. There he has this, this um, vision of of God and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have seen uh, the movie that was made about, uh, about this. Olivia, uh, Octavia Spencer uh, starred in it. But let me, let me make sure you understand the book, the concept, is, is just off biblically. It's got some terrible theology in it. But it's how that we need to understand the Bible is sufficient, and we need to be careful those who have what they think are visions and they, they go off off the, the, the record of God's word. Even a man by the name of Alexander Malarkey, uh, he had a book published about his tragic accident where he had a brain trauma, uh, his spinal cord was damaged, he became quadriplegic, but two or three years later, after the book went into bookstores, Christian bookstores, and was selling like hotcakes, he claimed it was a hoax. He said this was all a hoax. And God's Spirit got a hold of him and convicted him, and he became a believer. He became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he exposed the fact that what he said was all a big hoax and that the Bible is sufficient. He wrote a a, a book about that. The Bible is sufficient about what we should believe about heaven. Now, there's a third statement. Question the identity of any being of light. Question the identity of any being of light. Many times when you hear people talk about their near-death experiences, they talk about this light, this being. But, but that light, that being, contradicts the Word of God. These are false Christs. These are the Antichrists. These are contradictory Christs. Remember, the Bible says Satan comes in the form of light. We're in spiritual warfare. And Satan will do whatever he can to deceive us and mislead us away from God's Word. And the last statement is this. The Bible doesn't record near-death experiences. The Bible does not record any near-death experiences. You say, what about Lazarus? What about Jesus? They were dead. And they were brought back to life. Lazarus, of course, would have to die again. Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again the third day. You say, what about Stephen and Paul and John? Well, Stephen had a glimpse of heaven in the book of Acts, but it was before he was stoned to death. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 had a glimpse of heaven, but God said, I don't want you writing about it. But he, but he was able to at least identify that he had this experience of peering into heaven, the third heaven. And John uh, he was given a vision of heaven. It had nothing to do with near death. And, and in any report that you might want to call these near death, none of them came back to write about it. You know, Lazarus never wrote about his experience. Jairus' daughter, who Jesus raised, never came and wrote about her experience. The, the widow's son, who was raised by Jesus, he never wrote about his death experience. And to stop and think about and any time somebody writes a book about their experiences, God didn't even let Paul write about his experience. You have to look at the reasons why, but none of these wrote, and yet people feel free to be able to write about things like that today. No, there's no such thing as near-death experiences in the Bible. The weight of Scripture argues against them. Folks, we don't need near-death experiences to tell us heaven is real. We don't need those. The Bible is sufficient in itself to tell us what we need to know. It may not be all we want to know, but it's what we need to know about heaven. Now let's look at the third question. Do people in heaven know what is happening on earth? Do people right now in heaven know what we're doing that we are worshiping right now? Well, let's look at a scripture that is often misunderstood. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Now, at first glance, you get the idea there's all these witnesses in heaven. And they're looking down and watching everything that we are doing. Wouldn't you find that kind of embarrassing that people are at the balcony of heaven and they're looking down and seeing everything that is going on in your life? You remember that commercial, uh, the uh, Charmin toilet paper commercial, and all of them are squeezing the toilet paper. And all of a sudden the mother says with this weird sound says, you know, this is getting kind of weird. All right. Well, don't you think it'd be kind of weird if people are looking down upon us? Well, let's understand what Hebrews 12 was talking about. You have to look back at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, you've got the hall of faith. That's who he's talking about in in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He's talking about believers, the Old Testament believers, and how that they are witnesses for us how to live our faith. We are surrounded in the word of God. The image here is we're surrounded by these people that we can look to and they are motivating us. They're, they're encouraging us. They're our examples to persevere in our faith while we run our race. They're encouraging us the obstacles that they had and they overcame by faith in God. That same faith will help us to overcome we can look to them as witnesses. No, they're not people up there. Your, your family's not up there looking at what's going on right now. And while that, that, that sounds good and could be inspirational to us, no, they're not. Now, is there an awareness in heaven of some things going on here? Well, we'd have to say yes, Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. He talks about the churches, the seven churches. He was aware of what was going on in the seven churches. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says the angels are aware of what's going on. In in Luke chapter 16, with Lazarus and the rich man, which I believe is a real story. When Jesus told parables, he never used names. But in this one, he uses Lazarus and this rich man. I think it's a real story. They have an awareness of their location at this particular time. We also know that, um, that in, in Luke chapter uh, 15, we find that the angels are celebrating in heaven. Every time someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, there's celebration going on. When you became a Christian, angels were celebrating in heaven. They have an awareness of what's going on. In Revelation chapter 6, the tribulation saints They're coming before the throne of God. And they want justice for the tribulation martyrs on earth at that particular time. So yes, there is somewhat of a limited awareness by some. But to know everything that's going on, the Bible does not indicate that. Let's look at a fourth question. And that is, what kind of bodies will we have in heaven? What's your body going to be like in heaven? Well, the answer has two parts. First is what I call the pre-rapture In the pre-rapture, that means the moment that you die and you go to the intermediate heaven, you go to the third heaven, you go to paradise, all of those are the same. When you go to be with God, I believe that you have an intermediate body. Because, folks, how do you recognize me? How did you recognize me today? You recognize me because you saw my body. When, When Gidget and Ginger and Faye came in, they saw Travis. They didn't see some spirit floating around. All right, they saw my body. I recognize them because I recognize their body. So it will be and we can conclude this that there's this temporary intermediate body that we will have until the second part and that is the rapture. When Jesus comes in second and 1st uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, when we are told about the rapture of the church when the second coming begins, Jesus comes and we'll all come up out of the graves. And we will be given that permanent body that will last for all eternity. It will be a body just like Jesus himself. Listen to this, First John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are all children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, just the same kind of body Jesus had after his resurrection, and the disciples recognize we're going to have that same kind of body, a, a body that will last throughout eternity, that resurrected body. We're not going to have some disembodied spirit floating around. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it is said of Jesus that he was the firstborn. He was the firstborn of the dead. He was talking about the resurrection. And talking about the fact that he had the first fruits. But it also says that he's the firstborn with this body. And, and the word there is the prototype. Jesus is the prototype. When Jesus came back from the resurrection and he was with the disciples, there are a number of things that they were able to see. First of all, he had a physical body. Not only in that upper room later on in the Sea of Galilee. They recognized Jesus because he had a physical body. And it was a body that was now perfect. It was just had been enhanced. You will have that same kind of body. You'll have a perfect body, enhanced. Jesus was able to go in and out of rooms, out of doors. And it was able to move in an unbelievable fashion. You'll be able to do that. Your body will be enhanced as well. But it will be a personal body. We'll still be able to recognize you like they recognize Jesus as well. Now the last question is this. What does a Jewish marriage teach us about heaven? What does a Jewish marriage... Marriage teaches us about heaven. Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive Him to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, what we find is a connection between Jesus, the bridegroom, coming back for His bride, coming back for you and me. So, let's look beginning with marriage. Customs In Jesus' day, there were three particular customs, three phases to a marriage. There were the arrangements, the patrol, and then there was the celebration. Let's look at the arrangement for just a moment. The fathers of the young man, the young woman, they would get together and decide, okay, our children, we're going we're to let them marry each other. And then there would be the negotiation of the finances because the father of the, of the groom... He was responsible for paying the dowry for the bride. So there had to be a financial agreement. And when that was struck, then they would move to the second phase, and that was the patrol. And this is where the young man and the young woman, they would come together, commit to be husband and wife. It was a legal binding agreement, but they would not live together for a year. And even though they wouldn't live together, it was still legally binding. This is what happened with Mary and Joseph. They were engaged. They were betrothed for up to a year. What went on during that time? Well, the bridegroom went back to his home, and he would build extra rooms onto his father's house so he could bring his bride at the right time. That was the betrothal. And then the third phase was the celebration. There would be a time in a spirit of playfulness that the groom would come unannounced. He would come and he would receive his bride and take her to his father's house. There would be this great celebration. They would have music. They would have food. There would be dancing. He would be coming down, say, the street where the bride lived and people would be shouting, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. There would be bridesmaids. Of the bride who would always be on watch and to let the bride know so that she would not be caught by surprise. Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable about some bridesmaids, ten of them. Five were ready, five were not. And when the bridegroom came, by the way, at midnight to surprise, the five who were ready, they went into the celebration. The five that were not ready had to go get some extra oil for their lamps, and the door was closed, they couldn't get into the celebration. And so there we have the the celebration, the customs of that particular day, and Jesus records part of that for us in Matthew twenty five. Now, how does that relate to our salvation? How does that relate to our salvation? Well, first of all, the arrangements of our salvation. Our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, before the foundations of this world, He determined the price to pay the debt for our sin, which equals the dowry for the bride. So that's the arrangements. God said His Son, the Lamb of God, will be the payment for the bride itself. So we look at the bride. The bride is the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Second Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11:2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might be might present you as a pure virgin to him. Ephesians 5:32 says that it is a profound mystery that he is the bridegroom Jesus and the bride the church. And for all of us that have been married and that are looking forward to marriage in the the years ahead, for those widow and widowers that are here, your marriage is a symbol of the bridegroom and the church. And that's why it is to be held in such sacred way. That's why God hates divorce. Because your marriage is a symbol of as a Christian, is a symbol of the bridegroom and of the church, Jesus Christ. And so where is Christ right now? Where is the bridegroom? He's in heaven with His Father. He's preparing a place for the bride. We're already betrothed to Him when we made our commitment to Him in salvation. We have pledged our love and our allegiance and our faithfulness to Him until He returns. And that's the third phase there will be a returning. One day there will be the surprise when Jesus will come to receive His church. And what He will do is He will take His bride to His Father's house where we will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will reign with Him for all eternity. So here we have been pledged. We don't know the exact day. We don't know the exact hour when the bridegroom returns, but we are to be ready so let me close with this question where will you be five minutes after you die where will you be five minutes after you die only three possible answers some of you very confidently say I'm going to be with God in heaven I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was a child. I was a teen. I was adult. But there was a time in my life when I made a commitment. I recognized I had a need, and only Jesus Christ could fulfill it. And I committed my life to Jesus Christ. You confidently know where you will be. You will be in the presence of God five seconds after you die. But maybe there's somebody here, and you're answering that question I have to admit, Pastor, I'm a little confused. Well, there's two groups of people that can be confused. One of those are Christians who, for whatever reason, may not be assured of their salvation. You know you made a commitment to Christ. You may again been a child, a teenager, an adult. Maybe you've not lived for Him. Maybe there's been a lack of discipleship. Maybe a full understanding of the salvation experience. And so... There may be a, a little confusion. You just need some help to understand there is an assurance that if you know Christ, you have eternal life. But there may be somebody else in that same category of confused, but you're not a Christ follower. And you are confused. You're, you're not sure. You hope. You, you hope. Or I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't have it all together. Listen. If you're in that part of the confusion, this is what you need to know. If, If there's a little ignorance here, let me be sure you know before you leave here this morning. If you're not a Christ follower, how do I become a Christ follower? You admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you've broken God's laws. You admit that you cannot pay the debt because there is a debt that is owed for your sin. And then you've got to believe after you understand and admit that you're a sinner. Believe Jesus Christ is the one that paid your debt for you. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. God's Son. The only way of salvation. You've got to know Him to be able to know the Father and to get into heaven. There's a third thing, though, you've got to confess. It's not enough to have head knowledge. You've got to have a heart change. And that comes about by confessing Him as Savior and Lord. So that takes away the confusion now. Because really there's, there's only two places. you either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Now the confusion is gone because if you know Jesus, you're going to heaven. If you've not responded by admitting, believing, confessing, you're going to be separated for eternity in a place called hell. But there's a third response. Where am I going, where am I going to be five seconds after I die? There's some people that are going to respond very callously and say, I don't care. I don't care. But five seconds after death, you will care. You will care. And, and maybe there's somebody here confused who needs to know the gospel. You've heard it. Maybe there's somebody callous. Now, we've all had callouses maybe on our hands, maybe on our feet. Something that's rubbed and then just becomes insensitive to pain. The Holy Spirit can work through the calluses. He can break through. But you got to let him break through. You say, well, I don't care. Five seconds after you die, you wish you had cared. And we plead with you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. If there's somebody here, some of you have family, some of you have friends, some of you will meet strangers, they will be calloused. And I pray that you will be able to share the message that five seconds after death they will wish they have cared. Would you bow your heads with me? Your heads are bowed and eyes closed. You've, You've heard the answer to some questions. Maybe it's prompted other thoughts in your mind. But I pray no one will leave here without knowing the truth about where they're going to be five seconds after they die. You're either in heaven or hell. You're confident, or are you confused? Those of you who may be confused Christians, I pray that you will come to understand your salvation experience, and that you, you're safe. But you need to have the assurance of that salvation and become confident. But maybe there's someone confused, you didn't know the truth, you've heard the truth today. So I pray that you will receive Christ through a prayer Admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, confess him as Savior and Lord. And my earnest prayers for anyone here who is callous. To come to Jesus, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. We're here to assist, we're here to help and to guide. Father, bless this time of invitation. Let your will be done as we share in this time of decision.